Hi, this is Shotgun Tom Kelly, and now that I have your attention, you wanted to be close to him in the dugout during his impressive 15-year Major League career because he was always watching, listening, and looking for an edge. Now, Kurt Bavakwa brings that edge to Dirty Kurt's dugout, where you can listen, watch, and be a part of the most honest, informative baseball show available today. Now, here's Kurt. Hey, everybody. How are you? You know, before I even talking about sponsors, or if I talk about the guests I'm going to bring on, I want to do a little rant. Uh, I know you might be used to rants because of social media. You see people do them all the time. I don't normally go off on a rant when it has something to do with another sport. But I have to in this situation. Because all I've read on social media the last couple of days was about how despondent and how sorry that I've read about the people that run the Holiday Bowl and all the people from NC State that came across the country to watch their team play, the UCLA Bruins in the Holiday Bowl at Petco Park, which incidentally cost an excess of a couple of million bucks to get ready for this game before the UCLA Bruins called in sick, literally called in sick. 60 or 70 players tested positive for COVID four or five hours before the game. And they notified the Holiday Bowl officials that they were not going to play. Well, I don't know how you guys feel about that, but I'll tell you the way I feel about it is – Shame on UCLA, shame on the athletic director, shame on the head football coach there. They should be suspended. UCLA should be pulled out of bowl games for the next couple of years. And the NCAA should do a full investigation into what the hell went on there the last week or so with testing for COVID and the procedures and protocol that that school should be be held to as far as getting their team ready. And even if they had 60 guys, which is really hard to believe, it's really tough to believe with any kind of testing protocol. You got 60 guys out of 100, 110 that tested positive, that's a damn shame. And that's why those guys should be suspended. And UCLA should go be suspended from bowl games for a couple of years. But the NCAA dropped the ball, too, on this. They should not have allowed them to pull out of the Holiday Bowl. There was too much on the line. And for that to happen, it's too bad. I feel sorry for the people uh, within the Holiday Bowl committee, all the people that work on that year-round to get it ready uh, for the people here in San Diego, uh, the Padre organization, all the Padre staff that worked as hard as they did on getting that feel ready because it, it really was beautiful. It was going to bring a lot of money to this economy. So I read everything about NC State, which we should be reading, 
but I'm not reading anything about UCLA, except they're the ones that pulled out of the game. All right, on to the good stuff, because that's the bad stuff. I want to thank Hacienda Casablanca. You're in, Dirty Kurtz Dugout. Welcome. And if you're ever in Hacienda Casablanca, you're going to enjoy some great Mexican food. They're over in East County in El Cajon on 700 North Johnson uh, in El Cajon. Uh, go up and uh, hunt down Tony or Cindy and tell them KB sent you and that you saw the show. And uh, we'll, we'll work out something for you. We'll be having more watch parties there. We had some good ones uh, towards the end of the baseball season this year. And we'll, uh, we'll schedule some watch parties for uh, the upcoming season. Let me ask you this. When, uh, when you hear the names Bonds and Clemens and A-Rod and Manny Ramirez and Sosha and even David Ortiz, what do you think of? What's the first thing that comes to your mind? when you hear all of those names put together besides good baseball players. I'm going to give you a second to think on that. Uh, I've already thanked Hacienda. I will thank them a couple of times throughout the show because if it wasn't for them, I doubt we'd be able to be brought to you every single week. Uh, our good friends at Lysima Oil Company, uh, your neighborhood Chevron dealers, uh, last week, Craig Wadecki from, uh, from Detroit won our first contest that is, uh, that is brought to you by Lasima Oil and also uh, the good folks at Davis Eye Center on the Did You See This segment. So Did You See This is going to continue. And we've added Did You Hear That? Because Craig was uh, was the guy that came up with the first answer of uh, Jack McKeon calling out uh, Pudge Rodriguez uh, when Jack first took over as manager of the Miami Marlins uh, when he was called not quite midway through the season in 2001 and led the Marlins on to a World Series championship that year. But he called out Pudge Rodriguez sat him down the next game uh, a week and a half in to his tenure as manager. Um, he developed an enormous amount of respect from the players. And I think that was one of the intricate reasons on why they went on and won the World Series that year, because of the respect for the manager, the camaraderie among the players. I think it brought guys together, and that's what that ball club needed that particular year. I mentioned – Bonds, Clemens, A-Rod, of course, we all think of steroids. The other thing we have to think about is, along with Schilling, talking about Kurt, Jeff Kent, Billy Wagner, and Scott Rowland, those are 10 names that are on Kevin Kernan's Hall of Fame ballot this year. Those are the 10 guys that he voted for. The reason I know that is because if you follow Kevin, like I do on ball9.com, he will tell you what his ballot is. And yes, he voted for Bonds and Clements. 
Kevin's going to be with us today. He's been a baseball writer for a long time. I met him here in San Diego. I didn't realize that he had a, a talk show on KFNB for as long as he did. I know that he did it for a short period of time, but he actually had a, uh, a talk show on KFMB for uh, six or seven years, along with Tony Gwynn. And uh, that's how Tony kind of got his little start that, uh, that he did uh, in radio and before he joined the Padre broadcast team. But uh, Kevin's been around for 45 years, 30 of them with the New York Post. You got some thick skin when you live in New York. He's, he's from uh, Pawanek. I'm going to ask him how to pronounce this because I've been messing with it the last couple of days. Uh, New Jersey, it's uh, um, it's like Atlantic City's like halfway between the town that Kevin's from and another town that's in New Jersey that's going to come into our conversation this year is uh, Tom's River, New Jersey. And I'll tell you why that is going, going to be... Uh, talked about uh, in a few minutes as soon as Kevin joins us. Uh, when he does join us, uh, Alan, let me know, because uh, one of the uh, one of the reasons that I bring up Tom's River in New Jersey is because uh, Kevin Kernan has been quoted as saying, and he's ready to rock and roll right now, so I'm not going to tell you what he's been quoted as saying. But, Kevin, welcome to the show. Uh, Dirty Kurtz Dugout, your first time here. I appreciate it. Well, I heard the whole intro. I'm a, you're 100% right, uh, UCLA. I, I don't care how you do it. you got to come up with a better way. you got to play that game. I've been to many holiday balls. You know, don't forget all the time I spent with Hank Bauer in San Diego as well. It taught me a lot of football. And, and the people that put the holiday ball together are just some of the best people in the world. And for this to happen to them, I'm glad. I'm glad you're, you're a man after my own heart because too many people in the media don't speak up when things go wrong and don't don't ask for accountability. And I'm all about accountability. And I think that was a great opening, great segment. And, and of course, you got to my Hall of Fame ballot. And I got to tell you, um, I, I, I won't mention the Hall of Famer. One other time I voted for Bonds and Clements. This is about four years ago. Because I, I see, I know what steroids do. They help you. They help you tremendously. I saw it on different levels. Don't forget I have three children. They were playing through high school at that time on the college. And one was a softball player. So I saw steroids on all different levels. So I was pretty adamant not to vote for the steroid guys. Lo and behold, one year I kind of give in. I vote for them. I walk into, I will tell you, it's the Yankees clubhouse. And all of a sudden somebody jumps Gets in my grill, like you said. You gotta have a, you gotta have a, uh, you gotta be tough, tough-minded. And they said, "How could you vote for them?" And and I said, "Listen, I'm tired of being on the wall. I've been on the wall long enough. It's kind of like, uh, you know, Jack Nicholson from the movie. I'm off the wall. Bud Selig's in the Hall of Fame. You know, the managers who manage these guys are in the Hall of Fame. Why am I Mr. PED Police? So this year." I decided to make it a rogues gallery. I opened it up and I got all those guys. I voted for them all. Not all of them are steroid guys, obviously, but I wanted to make, you know, and they also clogged the ballot so other guys couldn't get through in different years. But if you just got to, I'm just looking at numbers. If you just look at numbers, they're there. 
the character clause is a big problem. But since baseball isn't guarding the hen house, I'm not guarding it anymore. I'd love to see all those guys get up there and give speeches and see what happens. And so that's why I voted for him. That's it's that simple. Well said. Uh, out of all of the sports that you've covered in your career, is there a most enjoyable time that you had at any one? Yeah, that's a great question. Two things here. First, I want to say, because I did pay attention to your whole, whole intro, and you were so right about Pudge Rodriguez with Jack McKeon. Um, I did the book with Jack called I'm Just Getting Started after he won the championship in, the, in, in, in Miami. And part of doing the book was interviewing Jack, of course. But Jack let me look at his uh, personal effect, you know, personal stuff and letters. And I still have it to this day. At the end of the year, and this is why your show is so good, because you get to where it's all about and what's really happening in the sports. At that, the end of that year, Pudge wrote Jack a beautiful letter, a little, little, little note, and, and basically thanking him for being tough on him, making him the player he could be, and how they wouldn't have won the World Series without him. So that kind of backs up your little point you're, you're, you're making there. So, so I had, you know, so many years I did, I did the NBA during the, uh, the bird magic era, you know, when you could get to the guys. So that was fun stuff. I did the NFL. I was there when Joe Pisarczyk screwed up the fumble and it became the fumble play where the Eagles scored. And that changed football from that point on. Um, I was there with Dennis Rodman. If you watch, um, if you watch the, the uh, Michael Jordan series, the last 10 minutes of the, of the series, the, the last episode, you'll see me actually, they, they actually used my question and they didn't do much of that, but I'm actually interviewing Rodman in, in the hallway because all the other 400 writers went to the front door. I went to the back door, Kurt, and I got Rodman before he left. And, uh, and I asked him, I said, is this the greatest team of all time? And uh, now that you've won these, these, these titles, and he said, if you don't think we're the greatest team of all time, you know, you're doing a lot of drugs. And for Rodman at the time, you know, he had just come back from the wrestling and everything else. So that was a good comment. But I got to say, my years in San Diego were some of my favorite. And, and because I got the chance to talk to Tony Gwynn every day to hit, you know, talk about hitting every day. And Tony and I had a, you know, we had a good relationship. But the thing about Tony, as you know, you could get in a good argument with Tony. Five minutes later, he'd be laughing. And you, mm -hmm. you guys would be buddies. Tony and I had such a relationship, Kurt, that he let me, I bugged him for a few weeks. He let me actually open his check one time. You know, because uh, the checks show up on the stool, you know, every two weeks. And uh, I said, Tony, let me open. It. I just want to see what it feels like to make that kind of money. And he finally gave in one day and he and I wasn't going to write about it, of course. So I opened the check and it was a two week pay period. I forget the exact figures, but it was like 80,000 or something like that. And I go, holy crow. And he goes, yeah, but look at the taxes. Look how much they took out in the taxes. So. <laughs> That's a typical ball player response. So, so I had a lot of fun with Tony. Tony actually set up an interview with Barry Bonds. This is a good, quick little story. I wanted to do a story on how Tony and Barry are different hitters, but they take the same approach and how they approach hitting. Much different power hitter and whatever, but they were very similar. And um, and Tony laid it all out for me why why he thought they were the same. So we go up to San Francisco for a three game for a three game series. Tony set it up. I went through the PR people. I'm supposed to get an interview with Barry for five minutes. I go to Barry before game one, Friday night, sitting on the bench, got his bat right here. 
I go, well, yeah, I explain it all. He knows who I am. And he goes, nah, I'm busy, man. I said, okay, you're busy. I'll come back tomorrow. So I come back on Saturday, day game, quiet. He's got the bat right here. Hey, you got those five minutes? And he goes, no, nah, I'm busy. I said, okay, Sunday. We got to get it done no Sunday. I'm leaving town. So now, and this is what makes me different, Kurt. This is what gets me in trouble sometimes. Sunday comes, 11 o'clock, and as you know, there's nothing quieter than a ballpark at 11 o'clock in the morning on a Sunday. And I, and I go up to Barry. I say, Barry, you got those five minutes? And he goes, nah, I'm busy, man. So now I go to him. I say, you're busy? I go, I'm busy. He goes, what are you busy about? I said, I'm busy thinking about my MVP vote right now. I'm thinking about my MVP vote. And he, he laughs. He goes, you, you have an MVP vote? And I said, I sure do. Sit right down. He gave me a half hour, talked about his earring for the first time, how it came from his grandfather's cross. I talked to Dusty that day about it, and Dusty couldn't believe some of the things Barry said. And, and to this day, I still have a good relationship if I see Barry. But uh, that's, that's the kind of – so those were fun days because – not only because of the job, but because of the access. We had tremendous access to the players, tremendous access to the coaches. You could get questions answered. It's very hard for the media today, and I feel for them because they don't have the access that we once had. And if you if you're not if you're not talking to the players, you're not getting good information. It's really that simple. And and, and I, so I really love my time in San Diego. Yeah, San Diego was when you were here. Uh, I really believe it was some of the best time because I think the team was getting a little bit better. It was starting to be recognized. Um, there was somewhat of a rivalry starting to develop with the uh, Dodgers up the street. And then all of a sudden, uh, 1984 happened. Uh, yeah. So so that was fun stuff. You know, I've got um, so many things that I want to get uh, get with uh, with you, and I, I don't want to miss uh, any of them. So I'm going to go back to the question uh, that I asked you where you touched on the Rodman thing. And I don't know, maybe it was the Rodman story uh, that you were pointing out, but – is there one thing that you covered that stands out the most in your career? Well, I would have to say it would probably be, um, if there's one thing, it would have to be either some of the Super Bowls I covered. I'll tell you, I'll tell you a quick one. To me, one of the great games was the NFC Championship when the Giants beat the 49ers in the, uh, up in Candlestick. And then when we got in the clubhouse, it took a while to get in the clubhouse. But I just want to show you how strong some of these guys are. The old candlestick clubhouse is wide open. So you could see everywhere, even the shower area. So I come in. This is after, this just shows you how strong Eli Manning is. I come in and we're sitting there. We're waiting for the kicker because the kicker will kind of won the game or something. I forget the exact details. But Eli was wrestling one of the offensive linemen down on the ground. And, and, and this this is a victory clubhouse, you know what I mean? So so to see so to see that how how this team got along and how they won and how the fact that Eli was so strong he could he could take down Iman that tells you a lot about the inside of the game. Now the, the same thing with the with the Bird uh, uh, Magic years, you know some of the things I saw there were just unbelievable. And Michael Jordan, so, so so I almost have so many great memories. It's hard to pick any one. The one baseball memory that stands out of all is when I was seven years old though. That's when Bill Mazeroski hit the home run that beat the Yankees. And I was a big Yankee fan. And I think that that kind of pushed me towards my career because 
that that kind of broke my heart. But it was an unbelievable moment, an unbelievable World Series. And at that moment, I realized the ups and downs of sports. And there's a story to be told for every game. And uh, and that kind of solidified who I was. And I had all the Yankee championships. Uh, a lot of them, you know, uh, during the year when I came back, when they beat the Padres, obviously. I was there for... I actually predicted what uh, uh, Aaron Boone's home run before the game. I was sitting with another writer, and I said, "This is going to be like 1978. An infielder that's not that's not a great hitter is going to win this game in a home run. I'm picking it's going to be Aaron Boone." That was, of course, the game seven in 2003. So I was there for the Red Sox comeback. All those games in 2004. And when you mention Ortiz, um, I didn't have as much trouble voting for Ortiz because I realized what he did for that community. He put that community on his back in 2004 and won that series. Uh, 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 so, so all these are great, are great moments. Um, it's really, it's like having children. It's hard to pick out the best one. Um, but uh, even the Padres, I remember when the Padres and, um, you know, when, uh, when they made it to the playoffs finally, uh, with the Gwyn, uh, Tonys uh, and and their fans being in the in in the parking lot, that was a great memory. When when they greeted the team coming back, so so uh, I, I kind of look at them all. Every every and I I stay young. I, I did a story today. I I just I, it, it was published today. I found out yesterday about it. I found out what happened to one of John Madden's buses. How it became the Madden Cruiser. It was purchased in Ohio by the Ohio Regents. Uh, an edu the education uh, community, the college community, and they used it and refitted it and to teach students in, in 1999 and 2000 to improve their reading and to get them to go to a uh, higher education. Imagine that with John, uh, John Madden's bus. So every day is a new story for me, a lot of fun, and uh, and I'm not afraid to take anybody on. And anybody who reads Ball 9 knows that I am really taking on the nerds. Um, I do like the Padres hire Brian Price. I think they need some more, uh, uh, more of that in their clubhouse and, and, and talking to management and ownership. But I do think baseball has lost its way because it's gotten too much into numbers. And to get back to John Madden again, why did we all love John Madden? Because he was authentic. He was authentic and he told a story. And too much now is too much. It's all about numbers and not, not the athletes behind the story. I think we need to get back to that a little bit in, in telling sports stories. Well, I'm, gl I'm glad you brought up Ball 9 because uh, uh, that, that's one of the big reasons that uh, we reconnected uh, after quite a few years of not talking right. uh, was because of your uh, uh, relationship with Ball 9 and the stories that, I mean, I, I got to tell you, I've read a couple of stories on, on Ball 9 that uh, – that just blew me away. And uh, there's there's two of them in particular that just hit home so hard with uh, with what I see and what's happening in the game of baseball. And uh, the titles, and folks, I'm telling you right now, uh, if you don't know where this website is, you need to go to it. I'm not trying to sell anything for Kevin here. And you know what? I Is there even a charge for – no, it's all free. Yeah, okay, there you no go. No we're not trying. I'm not. We're not trying to sell you anything. I'm just telling you if you want to read some good articles about what's going on in the game of baseball today, you need to go to ball9.com and read Kevin Kernan's columns, especially 
the one fix the supply chain oh. and death of the sandlot. Those two articles blew me away. And I certainly want to talk to you about them today um, because of what I believe MLB did. I think COVID helped MLB do so many things that would have been really difficult for them to do if it hadn't been for COVID. And one of the big things was dropping 100 minor league baseball teams. And I think that's one of the avenues that lead into the entire story of fixed the supply chain is the lesser amounts of minor league teams that the major league teams have to draw on, therefore flooding rosters at the minor league levels and not giving players enough playing time and ABs before they get to the big leagues. So, so true. And I'm, I'm so glad you brought that up because when I do stories, it's not just me pontificating. I talk to a lot of people in baseball still. Uh, just, just for background purposes, I was with the Post for like 27 years. March of 2020, I get a phone call out of the blue. My job was eliminated. Okay, I don't cry. I'm not a crybaby. I move on. You know, uh, you guys, I, I probably learned that from ball players. You get traded. I remember Pat Dobson telling me once, the, the great old pitching coach and pitcher, uh, he, he told me, he said, Kevin, the best thing in my career was to get traded because I made a whole new set of friends. And then, and that's kind of how I looked at it. And all of a sudden, Ball Nine came. The guys from Ball Nine called me about two months later, and we're able to, you know, I'm able to give a voice to all these baseball people who work for organizations and can't speak. If they spoke publicly, they'd be, you know, they'd be canceled. It's really that simple. And I can't tell you, Kurt, especially guys from your generation, I'm really blown away. The guys from your generation reach out to me just like you did in messages. Uh, emails, um, um, and, and before your generation and after your generation, uh, Ted Kubiak, for example. You know, Ted Kubiak reached out to me out of the blue, and he had one of those stories you had just mentioned that fixed the supply chain, I believe it was. He had passed it along to Tony LaRussa, and LaRussa loved it. So within the baseball family, more people are reading me now from baseball than before with the Post. So that's a big plus. And, and fix the supply chain. You, uh, the great point there, and this is why they don't understand unintended consequences. They cut all these minor league teams. Well, where are you going to put the minor league players? You know what the answer was? Because I had somebody who was in that meeting when they asked the, the MLB guys what was going on there. And they said, oh, that's okay. We only got five rounds to the draft now. And they said, no, you're still going to have to sign more players. And So they don't understand that they need – there, the one team, the Orioles, I used that specifically in my column. They had 88 players last year at Triple A. How in the world are you going to get your ABs, get your innings, and, and, and get it all done with 88 players coming through the system in, in one year? That's that's crazy. And and so I have a lot of good friends who are scouts. They they, they would call me from games and say, yeah, the pitcher's pitching a no-hitter. He got, throw, he got, he got taken out in the fourth inning with uh, 70 pitches. Well, how are you going to learn to extend yourself? Now they have this starting pitching problem. It's a problem they created by not extending these pitchers. Going back to Jack McKean, a quick quick story. Jack McKean is managing in Missoula, Montana in the 50s. And he's got this young pitcher he loves, a young lefty. 
And the man, upper management loved this other stud prospect, but Jack loved this kid and met a better steak dinner that this kid was going to make the majors first. So this kid is pitching. He's in trouble in the sixth inning, loads the bases with no outs. Jack walks out to the mound and says, hey, you got yourself into this? You figure out how to get out of it. The kid figured out how to get out of it. You know who the kid was? Jim Cott. You know? So, so, so. <laughs> These, these pitchers are not allowed to figure out how to get out of tr- trouble anymore. And, 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 these, and the scouts are telling me, they said they started noticing this difference about six years ago. And it also goes down to as far as the minor league managers. They're not allowed to manage anymore. I was talking to Buck Showalter last week, and I asked him, I said, is there a leadership gap in the game? You know, that they, they, the Mets had him for a press conference as their new manager. And he gave me a fascinating answer because Buck thinks about everything. And he said, unfortunately, the guy, the young guys that are managing are not allowed to really figure out how to manage anymore because they're being told what to do. I'm, I'm paraphrasing here, but that's basically what he said. They're being told what to do. And I think you saw that this year yourself in San Diego. Um, you know, it's hard for a young man. I'm, I'm not in here to kill young managers, but it was hard for Tingler and those guys to to get things done when they're never really allowed to manage. So baseball creates this problem, not having enough players to, to play, uh, not positions for the players to play and teams to play for. And yet they say things. Uh, one of my friends asked uh, one of the MLB people, well, well, why are you just cutting it to five? Don't you want to grow the game? Why are you cutting it to five rounds of draft? And they said, really, that five rounds is really where all the players come from. Well, Mike Piazza might say something different. Jake DeGrom, a ninth, ninth rounder, might say something different. So the biggest problem with baseball is the people, people in charge don't know baseball anymore. And I'll leave it at that. Well, you, you left it at a nasty place, but that's where it is right now. <laughs> Do you think MLB is trying to control not only the MLB players, but also the amateur players with what they've done in the last – I mean, we've seen it in the last year and a half to three years of almost a controlling type situation coming from the offices out of New York and and the MLB association. Yeah, I think they want to totally control it. And I'll I'll take it a step further. They're even got their hands into the Atlantic league. So when they do things like the 61 foot uh, rubber to home plate, you know, uh, they, 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 they're tied in there so they can get this done. And I know a lot of, I was told that pitchers just be, uh, w- w- hated that. They hated that, but they come up with all these crazy ideas and they test them out. They want total control. They want baseball under one roof. That's the best way I can describe it. It's not just minor league baseball. It's major league. They want to control every avenue of it. A lot of the teams, now, if you notice, have been, uh, some of the minor key minor league teams have been sold recently to different groups. So baseball wants to control that end of it as well. They, they want to control the supply chain and they want to control uh, everything about how the game is played. And instead of making the players make adjustments, like uh, maybe, uh, you know, hit the ball the other way, um, uh, you know, they, they create the whole, the whole pay system is set up on home runs. So you can't really blame the players for launch angle baseball. But the reality is, uh, that's not baseball anymore. And, and, and you mentioned the Sandlot uh, column I wrote, too, because I thought back to the time when I grew up and also, like I said earlier, my kids, we were always on the, on the ball fields playing. They were always packed. 
They're not packed anymore. They've lost the generation of fans who can't play baseball anymore. And if you can't play baseball, how are you going to fall in love with it? You're not going to fall in love with it just because of video game and just maybe going to a game. You can. I'm saying you can be a fan that way. But most baseball players are at any level really understand the game to a different degree. And that's why they love the athleticism, the stolen base, the hit and run, hitting behind the right, all the things that happened. And, and all that's being taken away. And it's being taken away because they don't know, they just want to make it a home run, uh, you know, home run, a power game, power pitching, power swings. All the, uh, all the little nuances of the game are being taken away. And I only wish Tony Gwynn were, uh, uh, you know, if Tony Gwynn played in this generation, he'd probably hit about, uh, you know, 400 for sure, uh, taking advantage of all, all the green space out there. So, so it's, uh, I do think it's starting to turn a little bit. And I think the show Walter hire is important. And here's why. Show Walter has a voice to the owner. Steve Cohen and him are already talking. And if you know anything about Buck Showalter, you know he's going to get his voice heard. So, uh, so the, the, most GMs have put a wall up between the owner, the owner, and the manager. Well, that wall's knocked down a little bit now. So now the owners are going to get some direct answers from the managers, and I and I'm starting to see that a little bit. We've seen it with some other organizations. Um, Labrusa has, you know, he. I don't care what you say. He had success getting them to the playoffs. Uh, Dusty Baker had success. These guys are respected. And and as an offshoot to uh, what we were talking about earlier, when the managers don't have any power, they uh, the players take advantage of them. Even, even in the minor league, the top draft picks and the top top money guys, they don't respect the manager. So they come up to the majors. All of a sudden, you may have a situation where that team. Where's the leadership, you may be asking. And I think to some extent, I think the Padres had a leadership problem, uh, you know, the last couple of years. I think it's getting a little better, but I think they need to really take take control of that because they have too much talent uh, to, for them to finish the way they did. And also, they've also learned that tough lesson that you never have too much pitching. So, uh, you know, it all comes back to basic baseball, Kurt. And, and, and unfortunately, when you take all, this, all these uh, coaches – um, managers, instructors, so many good instructors are out of the game now. They've gone to the college level or they've just gotten away from baseball. And, and when you take that, there's a, there's a, there's a loss of uh, intelligence and in knowing how to get the job done. And now suddenly I had two Mets players tell me that last year was a tough year for them because it was so confusing. They were getting, they were getting hearing so much from so many different hitting coaches. The pitchers were hearing so much from pitching coaches. And, and I've had other players tell me, there's almost almost too much information out there. And you can answer this better than I can. But you know, you can get paralyzed by information, especially when you're standing at the plate trying to hit a, a 97-mile-per-hour fastball. Well, I, the more information that you get, the more you have to think. Yes. And I know that becomes an issue if you're a Major <laughs> League Baseball player thinking – and even guys that go all the way down to the minor league level and in the college level, if they think too much, they're done. Uh, I think it's uh, it's a good segue into what you were just talking about uh, with the loss of doing the little things in the game of baseball and Tony being around and uh, what would he do if he was around. Uh, but the, you, the other article that drew my attention was Death of the Sandlot, which I think falls into this category uh, with 
going around the United States and not seeing baseball the way we once saw it. And um, it's like I said to the folks uh, watching and listening, we don't, oh, incidentally, I got to check and see who's on here because uh, I want to say hi to him. Um, I'm here with Kevin Kernan, a, a national sports writer with, uh, with ball9.com used to uh, work for the New York post. What, there's a lot of things that I miss about, um, I get a little nostalgic at times. Um, I miss New York city newsstands. <laughs> uh, I miss being able to walk by and see what was going on in sports just by looking at the back of the New York post. And sometimes the front of the New York post, if Billy Martin and Steinbrenner were still together in town. Yes. So, yes. but it was a, it, it was a fun time, but I'll tell you what drives me crazy, Kevin. It drives because if people will dissect our game, they'll see that it's being done half-assed now. Yes. But yet you get to the postseason <laughs> and they try to go back to the way the game used to be played. That's the part of it that drives me up a wall. I don't understand it. They try to bunt. There's no way they can bunt. Wow. And they try to do it in the postseason. They try to hit and run. They try. They don't move guys over from second base to third base, even in the 10th inning. Thank God that rule's gone. But in the 10th inning, there were a few times that, oh, I liked it. But it, it made things – it made for things that were exciting. But the thing that I was starting to say to our viewers, um, you know, we're only touching on a couple of different things in both uh, Fix the Supply Chain and, and, and Death of the Sandlot in Kevin's articles. And, and he has other articles in there. Uh, I, I pointed out these two because they were so fascinating to me because of the things that I see going on. But Kevin, in Death of the Sandlot, before I wanna get back to almost the intro to the show, because there's a lot of people looking out there that I'm gonna remind them of about what I said and they're probably they were probably thinking at one time before they got into what we were talking about. What's he talking about Tom's River, New Jersey for? I'm going to get back to that in a minute. But let's talk about Death of the Sandlot, that article you wrote. And that I, I can't tell you how it hit the nail on the head. And anybody that read is, read it uh, is going to be fascinated uh, with the story. And they're not going to look at baseball the same way after reading this article. I know I didn't. Yeah, because what, what's happened is that little leagues used to have maybe 15 teams. Now they're down to four or five teams. Now they're playing other. They have to play other towns. Um, you would you would play all day at the at the at the at the park and play with your friends. And you know what you learned, Kurt, uh, Kurt when you played at, at that kind of in that kind of level of baseball. Maybe you didn't have the launch angle, but you learned competition. You learned that if you got in a pickle, how am I get out of it? You you watch these guys now. You know they run themselves in and outs all over the place, and, and that's a great point. I, I love your point about the World Series because I also pointed that out in there. They, they, they get to the playoffs of the World Series and they try to play that level game. And to your point exactly, because again, this isn't just me spouting. I talked to a long time, um, uh, basically a player development guy who's the head of a, a good team's player development. 
he finally he cashed it in a few years ago. This is what happened. This is what sent him over the edge. He's in spring training. He's going around the four fields. He's noticing that at every field, they're just swinging from their ass. That's all they're doing, swinging from their ass. And uh, so he goes up to the guy who's now, that a new group came in, and he goes up to the guy that's in charge, and he said, hey, I don't see us practicing bunting or hitting behind the runner in any of these fields. Everything is just launch angle, big swings. And the guy goes, the guy in charge says, that's right. That's all we're going to do. That's what we're working on. And, and this smart baseball guy who's been in the game for 30, 40 years said, well, what happens when we get in a situation like in the postseason, we got to put down a bunt or a key part of the game. We got to move a guy over or we got to steal a base or how are we going to do it? He goes, we'll just do it. We'll just do it. That's what the guy said. They thought the game was so easy that you could just do that without practicing it ever. So that's and that's a guy that's in charge of a team. So that's happening on every level at every team. And, and it's really, it's destroying the fabric of the game. And because these kids now are not playing it, they don't come up with any instincts. Uh, I was talking to a former GM just yesterday who uh, told me, and I won't name the names of the players, both are good kids, hardworking players. But he told me that each of these players were the dumbest base runners he's ever seen in his life. They have no clue because they haven't been taught. You know, I'm sure when you were in the Padre minor leagues, you had special guys teaching you how to run the bases, cut the corner, do this, do that. That's not being taught anywhere anymore unless players are doing it on their own. So all those little instinctive things that players learn as kids playing on the sand like, that's gone. Everything is a weekend tournament. Everything is show us how far you can hit the ball, how hard you can pitch. And it's like uh, uh, the, uh, pit, uh, the assistant, I can't think of his name right now. I think it's Bo. But he's the assistant uh, head coach, pitching coach over at the University of Arizona, I believe. And uh, he says, he says, he says, I don't care how fast ball four is. I want command. I don't want a 50. I don't care what the spin rate is on a 55-foot slider. I want that slider to be over where I want it to be. So everything is technology and nothing is learning how to pitch. Tom Glavin told me this story. And I want every young pitcher to hear this that's out there now. I asked Tommy, I said, uh, how did you finally learn your command? Because he was all about command. He said, Kevin, he said, I learned, I lost 17 games my rookie year in the majors. And I was overthrowing. I went over, I talked to all our hitters on the team, and I said, what's the hardest pitch to hit? They all gave me the same answer, fastball low and away. I, I figured that's what I needed to do. That whole winter, I worked on command. And then he suddenly became a pitcher who won 300 games and went to the Hall of Fame. So it's, it's – but Tommy had to do that, you know, on his own. And, and that's even with great coaches back then. But he, had, he certainly had help from the coaches. The kids nowadays, they're not getting that anywhere. They're not getting it anywhere. And actually a friend of mine, he's got a book out. Uh, and he, he's uh, – I will give one plug here. It, it's called Teach Your Kids to Hit. And he's got a new, uh, he's getting together with Jeff, uh, you know, Jeff Fry, some other players. And, and they're trying to, they're trying to save baseball and they have saved the game. And they're trying to, they're trying to come up with a, um, a thing to get kids more involved and stay in the game for a longer period of time. Because all the programs that Major League Baseball put together, they really haven't really, they really haven't um, hit, hit a gold mine, a gold vein of players. And, and I think that's, that's still a big problem with the players today. So. If it doesn't change, you know yourself. You've seen the numbers. Kids are playing lacrosse. 
kids are playing soccer. They're not playing baseball as much as they want. And I have a lot of theories on that, and some of them might get me in trouble. But one of them is if you're playing shortstop in a game and it's the last inning and that ball goes through your legs, everybody knows who made a mistake there. If you're watching a soccer game, and unless you're a goalie screwing it up, a mistake is made on the field. Nobody has a clue. You know, the challenge of baseball is, is a mental challenge. In basketball, you can, you can make a defensive mistake that allows the team to score, but then you can go right back and get the two points back or three points back. In baseball, I think it's such a difficult mental challenge. You've got to have a certain mental toughness to survive this game. Baseball is so much harder on the individual players yes. uh, than the other sports, unless naturally if you miss an easy layup with, in a basketball game uh, with the buzzer uh, going off. Um, I, I have to get back to, uh, uh, to the beginning of, of this show when I uh, threw out the, uh, the town in uh, New Jersey by the name of Tom's River because I baited you. <laughs> the whole friggin' time, and you never fell for the bait on what your favorite time in the game was. Oh, that's, and, that's uh, true. I, I thought for sure. I thought for sure. You got it. I thought for sure. I was thinking professional, but no, on. I thought for sure, professional or any or not. I thought for sure you were going to say covering the 1998 Tom's yeah. River Little League team that You're won right. the right. the tournament in Williamsport. Well, let's go back to that because, you know, that's my mistake. I'll, I'll take the e, E6 here because uh, uh, I was thinking professional. But 1998, I, I go to my sports center. I say, listen, and again, I was heavily involved in youth sports. I said, I know there's this team in Tom's River that's pretty good in baseball. Why don't we cover the game up in Connecticut? And if they advance, they go to Williamsport. And this is when only four teams went to Williamsport, four. So, so, you know, the best of the best. And I love, you know, I love Little League and stuff like that. I, I know the president of Little League is a good dude, and um, he's trying his best. Uh, so I go up to Connecticut. Now, you got to picture this. This is, this is 1998. Uh, Harold, uh, you know, Harold Reynolds and I are basically the only guys there. We're watching the game. It's at by, it's by ESPN Studios. But I get there early like I always do. They had no press room. So I'm typing in a, in, a, in a storage shed because I have to send an early story. All of a sudden, I hear this chanting. And I hear, I hear, who let the dogs out? Who, who, who let the dogs out? <laughs> who, who? And it's the Toms River team walking onto the field with that New Jersey attitude. And you got to remember, this is three years before that uh, song became a hit. Nobody knew that song. Todd Frazier is singing that song because his older brother, I believe it was Charlie, went on a cruise like a week, a month earlier, came back with the tape. The band was playing on, on the cruise. And so that became their theme song. So they, so Todd let the dogs out. And him, him and the other starter team let off the first thing with home runs. They won 2 nothing. They went on to Williamsport. I spent the whole week in Williamsport. I stayed in a family hotel. I got to meet all, you know, I knew Todd before Todd was Todd. He was always Todd, but the crazy Todd. His father was a, and uh, his father was a athletic director, I believe, at the time. And he, he'd always be out in center field. We watch the games together. And those kids, the story they did, and 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 Todd's toughness. It's what we saw later years. Um, you know that that was a blast. And that was baseball was just baseball then. And uh, back then we had uh, 
you know, I think uh, I, I think even the next year, I think President Bush and Giuliani came out. But then we had the, um, you know, uh, we had the, the problem with the, the team from the Bronx. And so it was never quite the same. But that year of 98, watching Tom Ferrer beat the Japanese team, Todd hitting a home run, coming on to close the game, and, and getting two home runs that game. I can't think of the kid's name, but it was the ultimate baseball story. He was a reserve player, um, and, and he, he, he got to play in that game because he had to get his at-bats, and he hit two home runs. And isn't that the essence of what the game is all about? Your bench player coming up, winning a game, you got to win. So it's not just about Todd Frazier. And of course, Todd. Everybody, you know, when he when he stood with Derek Jeter, everybody thought he was a Yankee fan. Todd was not a Yankee fan. He did not grow up a Yankee fan. So, uh, so uh, knowing that family now for for twenty some years, it, it's a blast. And uh, uh, and I only wish Todd had gone on and won the gold medal this year in, in, in for, for USA. That would have been a, a, a nice closing to the ceremony. And the other thing, because you did set me up nice. I lived for many years in Pequannock, New Jersey. Pequannock is how you spell, uh, say it. It's very hard. But you know Pequannock. who was born in Pequannock? Derek Jeter. Derek Jeter was born in Pequannock. He's, uh, he's from Michigan, but his grandma um, uh, lived in the area, and the family was there for a short time. So that's where Derek Jeter was brought. So talk about uh, little leagues and, and things like that. Uh, you know, um, One other point on Jeter. And I want to make this about his parents, because I think parents are so important to the game. In a rain delay, and I had many conversations with Derek about this. Uh, in a rain delay in Clearwater, I got stuck under a, a, an awning with, uh, um, with a group of people. And this is spring training. And there was like an eight or nine-year-old kid there. And Mr. Jeter was there, Derek's dad. This eight or nine-year-old kid peppered Mr. Jeter with like 30 questions. Good questions. And Mr. Jeter, during that whole rain delay, calmly answered everyone. At the end of that, I went up to Mr. Jeter and I said, now I know why Derek is the way he is, you know, because that, that parental patience that is always needed. So, so, again, there's so much to baseball that's not just on the fields. And Derek and I have had many conversations. He always, because at the end of his career, they were really trying to tell him where to play and he didn't want to hear it. Because the nerds think shortstop is like a zone defense. They think it's basketball or football. They don't want the shortstop to be a shortstop anymore in, in the Ozzie Smith, Templeton days. And, and, and Derek wanted to position himself. So him and I, I would talk about it all the time, about how they're taking the instincts away from the game. And that was, that was quite a few years ago. So look where we are now. And it's only 10 times worse. So it's interesting. I, I, every time I see Derek, I always say, Derek, you're, you're the last hope. You know, you got to get your team playing baseball so other teams follow down in Miami. And they do have a good base, and they have some good people in the organization. We'll see where they go if they spend enough money to get the kind of hitters they need to get. So the reason that story resonated so much with me was not only because I watch Little League World Series every year on TV, but did you ever eat at the Tom's River Diner when you were covering that team? Oh, yeah. Good, good places to eat. Well, my yep. dad used to own the Tom's River Diner. No way. Oh yeah. <laughs> so I knew you'd get. I knew you'd get a kick out of that. Right. Now, not nine, not ninety eight. Right before that. That was my first job. Wow. When I was a when I was a freshman in high school, I flew up to spend the summer with my dad, and right. I worked at the Tom's River Diner. What was the uh, summer like in the uh, Tom's River those days? Must have been fun. Well, you know what. 
I don't even remember. I don't. I don't even remember because. That's a good answer. Yeah, because I, I, I didn't really know if I wanted to go for the whole summer, right. but I did, and I ended up working at the diner. So um, that ended up being a little more difficult than I anticipated. But well, I hope you got uh, some boy, there's so many, there's so many things that I can um, that I can get to you uh, with uh, Kevin, but we've we've run out of time. So I want to thank you. Uh, for coming on. I certainly want to thank uh, Hacienda Casablanca for sponsoring this show. Uh, like I told you, they're out in East County, um, 700 North Johnson. Uh, I want to thank Lasima Oil for providing us with, and don't forget, you've seen along the bottom of this little uh, flag going across where if you've missed any part of the podcast, you can always go back and you can listen and this is where that comes into play. I'm going to give somebody a $100 gift card uh, when we pick out a question in the next couple of weeks on any one of the shows that we've done. So it might be a question relating to what Kevin talked about or what him and I talked about in our conversation today. It might be a question that's related to something that happens next week on the show. But you got to keep your ears and eyes open if you want to get that $100 gift card uh, gas card. And, uh, I don't know why a gas card, a hundred dollar gas card to me sounds more <laughs> valuable than a hundred dollar gift card. I don't know why, but it just that's, does that's probably because gas out here, it's $4 a gallon, but don't forget ball9.com. Kevin Kernan, you can see him right here. You'll see his little caricature in the corner, but I want to tell you folks, there's some outstanding articles in this. And it's not just because Kevin used to work for the UT. It's uh, it's because he's one hell of a writer. And when it comes to hitting a nail on the head and the fact that he's not afraid to do it or he doesn't have circumstances surrounded that he, if he writes an article, he's going to get reprimanded for it because there are writers across the country that have their pens with duct tape on them. They can't write the articles that they probably really want to write because they're being controlled. They're being controlled by the clubs in the major league cities and they're being controlled by major league baseball in general. It's, it's a shame, but it's the way it is in this day and age of the game. So I want to thank Kevin. Thank all of our sponsors. We're right on it, Kevin, when it comes to time wise, you did great. I hope you come on the show again, continued success with Ball 9, and I'm going to continue to watch, so continue to write. We'll talk to you soon. Always a pleasure. Thanks, Kurt. Take care. Thank you. And for everybody watching, I appreciate it. This is Kurt Bavacqua from Dirty Kurt's Dugout saying join me next time right here.